Hello, it's Monique. And this is Landon. We're kind of excited to be back to talk to you this month. Uh, we're pre- preparing to head to our National Emergency Nurses Conference in beautiful Charlottetown, PEI, in June, um, where we will be talking about the opiate crisis and the ED response in British Columbia. I'm going to see if I can get, convince Landon to give oysters a try again and lobster, but he's a bit uh, well, the look on squeamish. My, the look on my face the first time you fed them to me was... Well, there's a picture and nobody wants to see it. So. No, not at all. I think it was a video, actually. There might have been. We should have this is visual so they can see your wonderful response to oysters, raw oysters from the Atlantic coast. Ugh. Looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to heading to Charlottetown PEI. Now, let's get back to the story at hand. Lantern, so we were talking about the opiate crisis and the ED response in British Columbia, Canada. And Landon has actually worked at the Emergency Mobile Medical Unit, which was set up to handle this crisis. With all of this exposure to the multi-layered issues around addiction, we thought it would really be interesting to talk about how we in the healthcare field have also contributed to addiction with our opiate prescribing from the emergency department and how some facilities are looking at creating a pain-free emergency department without opiates. If you are interested in a pain-free ED, MCRIT did a great podcast with Dr. Sergei Motov, who's one of the leading experts on establishing a pain-free ED, and he works in a Brooklyn emergency department. And and you can definitely Google Motov yeah. pain-free ED. There's a whole website with recipe book on what to use instead and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So we're not going to focus on that today, although we no. totally support that work. Yes. We're going to talk about different things. Yeah. I think one of the main things that we in healthcare struggle with is how do we strike a balance between managing pain effectively while also not creating or perpetuating a drug addiction or feeding a pre-existing drug addiction. In healthcare, we have looked at patient satisfaction with how pain is managed in the ED, and so I think we have been programmed to ensure that patients receive analgesics in a timely fashion. But managing pain doesn't mean prescribing opiates, and I think the struggle is having some resources or guidelines available to healthcare providers that allow us to treat pain, but in a conscientious way. I guess I'm actually particularly interested as uh, nurse practitioners in Canada are now covered to prescribe narcotics, and therefore it's important that we are cognizant about how and when it is appropriate to prescribe narcotics. I guess perhaps we should start with some background to highlight this problem. So in a a recent study on opioid prescribing patterns in the annals of emergency medicine in 2015, 17% of patients in the U.S. were prescribed opioids on discharge from emergency department. In Ontario, about 10 people die accidentally from prescription opioids every week. A significant proportion of opioids used for non-medical purposes are obtained legally through physicians. In 2010 in the U.S., one out of every eight deaths among people 25 to 34 was opioid-related. And four out of five new heroin users report their initial drug was a prescription opioid. In Ontario, three times the people died from opioid overdose than from HIV in 2011. Canada has the second highest opioid prescribing rates per capita, and no other province or territory dispenses opioids at a higher rate than Ontario. It's quite shocking, isn't it, really? You think well, it is. It's that. kind of mean, though, because... As Canadians, we always pick on Ontario anyway. <laughs> I know. Especially we love when you, we're Ontario. from British Columbia. We love you, Ontario, although 
Let's keep picking on them. Yeah. <laughs> From 2006 to 2013, there was a nearly 250% increase in the number of emergency department visits in Ontario, Ontario related to withdrawal, overdose, intoxication, harmful use, and other opioid-related diagnoses. So obviously it's not an Ontario problem. I'm sure everyone has their stats, but we could have gone through every province and state in yeah. North America and probably pulled the stats, but the Ontario ones are what available. we quoted here. And but available. It is, they are having, they're certainly seeing it and they have, because of this, as we were talking about, uh, Landon, that sometimes when there's a crisis, it actually gives people the opportunity to start having very creative, innovative ways of dealing with it. And Ontario, despite the fact, well, despite the fact that the stats show they have a large amount of prescription um, issues, they have also got a lot of resources about how emergency departments can deal with it. So, and Which we'll we're be talking get to about, later. yeah. yeah. Um, there's also another great podcast, Emergency Medicine Cases, uh, another Canadian podcast. Yes. That looks at opioid misuse in emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. And that podcast comes from Ontario. Ontario. In that podcast, they look at who is at risk for opioid misuse and the red and yellow flags. Now, bear in mind that all ED patients are at risk for opioid misuse, regardless of their risk factors. Even opioid-naive patients with no risk factors for misuse are at risk for developing a misuse problem. Absolutely. There are, though, particular risk factors red and yellow flags is the term that uh, was used, that should raise your suspicion for pre-existing opioid misuse and maybe help guide some of their management. So patients at particularly high risk for opioid misuse include young age, so less than 40, psychiatric history, substance abuse history, and benzodiazepine use. Does that mean if you're over 40, you're not young age anymore? Yeah, I knew you were going to bring that up and I'm going to just ignore you today because but, I'm older and wiser than you are and let's not mention that you are over I the know. age of 40 as well so now we're both old, old. finally <laughs> you've caught up but I'm planning to stay put so you're going to have to overtake me so let's talk a little bit about the red flags and yellow flags and frankly these for anyone who works in an emergency department we may not list it this way, but certainly we are all aware that red flags are patients who see multiple providers. They go to multiple hospitals. They have a f- friend or provider or the patient themselves reports an addiction. They buy street drugs and they use other people's meds. They steal prescription pads, syringes. They may forge their prescription or they have a false ID. Well, that's a red flag. I would think so. I stole the prescription. Yeah. There's also yellow flags, and these are ones we, we tend to get a little closer to and, and mm-hmm. get suspicious about. Of course. So many ED visits, multiple refill requests, requesting specific medications, IV medications, uh, refusing or being allergic to non-opioids yeah. from out of town with no primary care provider, although nationally that's a problem, no exactly. primary care provider yeah. just to start with. Uh, stolen or lost opioid, recent opioid prescription pieces of paper. Right. Uninterested in diagnostics or tests, more focused on just, just uh, deal a with prescription. My pain. Yeah. History of substance abuse or incarceration, absence of any ob- objective signs right. uh, of pain, symptom magnification, inconsistency, distractibility, and deterioration of work or social functions. And so, don't forget, you know, people who tell you they're allergic to multiple analgesics and this is the only one that works. Right. Yeah. Ontario has a great resource online. 
outlining consensus guidelines on opiate prescribing in emergency departments. And some of the key recommendations are non-opiate options are first line for all patients with pain, including non-pharmacological interventions, so it's like splints and ice, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, even local anesthetics. And understand that can be often initiated by nurses at triage without a physician's order, at least in my emergency department. And frankly, if you can buy an NSAID and a Tylenol from a over-the-counter pharmacy, why can't nurses give it right Absolutely. off the bat? Yeah. And maybe in the time they were waiting, their pain gets decreased to so a they point that less. when they see the physician, right. there is not a need for opioids anymore. Right. at triage, you're actually then going to have that 30 minutes it takes for Tylenol and ibuprofen to work. Exactly. And maybe that's when the next provider who would maybe prescribe opioids sees them. Exactly. So good Makes idea. Sense. It does. Number two. Before initiating opioid therapy, all patients should be assessed for misuse or addiction risk using targeted history or a validated screening tool, such as the opioid risk tool and opioid manager. I called it a screaming tool. I know you did. I thought, did he say screaming or screening tool? That would be a validated screening tool, (laughs) such as the opioid risk tool and opioid manager. If an addiction problem is identified, departments should perform brief interventions or make appropriate referrals to chemical dependency assessments, that sort of thing. Alternatively, the single question, how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or used a prescription medication for non-medical reasons, with an answer of one or more considered positive, may be preferable. That single question was found to be 100% sensitive, obviously, and 73.5% specific for the detection of a drug use disorder compared with a standardized diagnostic interview. Well, it's only one question. Just one question. Exactly. Look how specific it was. That's not bad. 74%. It's not bad at all, is it? Yeah. Opiate prescriptions will... This is number three. Oh, okay. We're trying to... We'll keep them organized on a list of 10. (laughs) Monique doesn't count well, so... I know. So he's having to let me know what's going on here. Number three. Okay. Number three, opiate prescriptions will be written for the least potent opiate with the lowest possible effective dose and a limited period of time until follow-up with a long-term care provider can be arranged. ED physicians should prescribe no more than a short course of opiate and analgesic. In a New York guideline... It states that most patients require no more than three days, and the Washington State Guidelines suggests a maximum of 30 tablets. Opiate dependency can develop within five days and will usually develop within 14 days. And let me be clear, that's not an addiction. It's a dependency that can develop within five days. That's not very long. Not very long. Yeah. Uh, Number four. ED physicians should take the following precautions when prescribing opioid analgesics. Avoid long-acting or extended release uh, opioids. These ones have been shown to have double the potential for overdose. Not surprising. Avoid intravenous or intramuscular opioids. Mm -hmm. Avoid prescribing to patients currently taking benzos. Avoid prescribing to patients currently taking opioids. Yeah. Avoid oxycodone. Oxycodone tends to have a side effect of euphoria and therefore is more habit-forming than oral morphine. That's interesting. Yeah. If you know that the patient is an IV drug user, do not give them oral opioids. There's a risk that these patients will crush the tablets and use them intravenously, which can result in infections and thrombotic complications. 
Prescriptions for opiate... Number five. Oh, sorry. I keep forgetting to do that. Prescriptions for opiate medications that have been lost, stolen, or destroyed should not be refilled. It's interesting that people never lose their prescription for digoxin, for glucophage, but they seem to lose it for their opiates. Isn't it? It's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Number six, tell patients to discard unused pills immediately, especially if they have adolescents living with them. Mm-hmm. Many people start the drug addiction in adolescence by experimenting with patients, or sorry, parents' opioid prescription pills. Or... The vodka in the liquor cabinet yeah, or, or the wine in the fridge. Exactly. Non-medical use of opioids in Ontario is ranked as the third drug of choice for students. And 67% of adolescents report getting these pills from home. Crazy. Number seven. Very good. Yeah, I learn, it takes me a while, but I will learn. Emergency departments should endeavor to maintain a list of clinics, practitioners, and services for appropriate referrals and follow-up for patients with chronic pain or addiction needs. This list should include chronic pain specialists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, addiction and mental health services, methadone or suboxone providers, and harm reduction groups. Number eight. All patients receiving an opioid prescription should be provided information in the form of verbal and or written instruction. I would say and. Yeah. Written instructions regarding the risk of overdose and dependence, safe storage, preferably locked, and proper disposal. Leftover pills should be returned to the pharmacy. Contact information for mental health and addiction services should be included if an addiction problem is identified. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to editorialize there a yeah. minute. And if you are in a place that provides take-home naloxone, maybe that's an option is do some Narcan training and yeah. have it at the home. If you're going to have these pills at home and and 67% of these adolescents are, mm-hmm. you know, might be useful to have a Narcan kit at kit home at as home. well. Absolutely. When prescribing, number nine, oh, I almost forgot there. Almost missed it. Almost missed it. Number nine, when prescribing opiates in the emergency department or as the result of post-operative pain treatment, follow-up visits with the family care provider should be encouraged for good continuity of care for managing opiate reduction and for alternate pain management. And number 10, signs should be posted in waiting areas with a simple summary of the department's opioid prescribing policy, which we will expand on a bit later as to what that policy cannot say exactly yes more to be... come exactly dun 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 <laughs> that's going to keep you interested to wait to the very end so we have talked about some redu- uh, recommendations for harm reduction but how do we manage pain in the emergency department we still have patients in pain so the ontario consensus has listed some pain management strategies for specific conditions. Now, some of these strategies would include having to teach providers specific interventions, and frankly, some of them require more time, which is sometimes a bit of a hard sell in business, busy emergency departments. But it is the right thing to do. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean we don't do it when it's the right thing to do. And we do have an opportunity to be leaders in emergency departments to do our part in the narcotic crisis. And don't forget, We've created this problem, and so now we have to clean up our mess. Um, And it is not these patients' faults, and we need to try to do our best for them. So let me talk about just a few different kind of specific conditions. So one of them, mechanical back pain. So maybe using a local anesthetic injected directly into the point of maximum care. Migraines. Opiates are known not to be useful for improving the pain associated with migraine headaches, and so should not 
be routinely recommended. So using Stematil is actually a really good drug for migraines. Maxaran or metoclopramide. Procl- See, I can never get these things around my... Prochlorperazine, which is Stematil. NSAIDs, ergotamine, tryptans, and high-flow oxygen has been talked about, but that will be a different... Oh, look, another podcast just came to my head. High-flow oxygen with migraines. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Low-dose propofol for refractory headaches have been reported to be effective in reducing the pain-associated migraine headaches in some case series. Why not do a dental block for dental pain? Don't give them something for pain. Do a dental block and then have them take um, anti-inflammatories. A combination of acetaminophen and ibuprofen for fracture pain with sickle cell patients, it's often challenging, but consider a low-dose ketamine, IV ketamine, for those patients in whom you suspect opiate misuse. Hmm. Now, let's talk about chronic abdominal pain. There has been some controversy around the role of using uh, antipsychotics as an adjuvant analgesic for pain. So, combining an antipsychotic and an analgesic. In 2013, the Cochrane Review stated that antipsychotics might be useful as an add-on therapy in the treatment of painful conditions. But you have to think about the extrapyramidal symptoms, the dystonia, muscle spasms, akesthesia, Parkinsonism, bradykinesia and tremor, and possibly tardive dyskinesia, and the sedating side effects before using antipsychotics for treating pain. There was a lot of big words there. Did you have fun? I did. <laughs> Just wanted to... Results for antipsychotics in the treatment of different painful conditions are mixed, and most sample sizes in the sorry most sample sizes in the reviewed randomized controlled trials are small. As is often said, more studies are needed in larger double-blind placebo-controlled studies that include standardized pain assessment and documentation. But in the meantime, you may see Haldol and ketamine being used for chronic pain. It's a good idea, really, yeah. if you think about it. Okay, let's talk about ketamine as an analgesic. I'm not sure how many of you are using it. I know many of us use it either as an induction agent for RSI or in conscious sedations. And perhaps some of you are seeing its use for pain control. Certainly in the pediatric population, I think we've certainly heard a lot about it. There, are, there have been many studies looking at ketamine as an analgesic, and there are some properties of it that make it very desirable. So ketamine rapidly crosses the blood-brain barrier. It works quickly peak concentration at one minute after IV push, and there's a rapid recovery to baseline, so 5 to 15 minutes after IV push. Push, did I say bush? I'm not sure. I just, Anyway, after IV push, at sub-dissociative doses of 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, either as an adjunct to opiate analgesics or all by itself, ketamine provides good analgesic while prescribed pres- prescribing while preserving the patient's ABCs. A small dose of ketamine also may increase increase the analgesic potency. potency. My goodness. The potency. I know. You sound very classy when you say potency. I know. I don't know what happened. A small dose of ketamine also may increase the analgesic potency of opiates so you don't need as many opiates. So this makes ketamine a great choice for analgesics in the emergency department, particularly patients with opiate-resistant pain like sickle cell disease or patients with chronic pain or polytrauma patients who are hemodynamically unstable. Excellent. So one of the last things we should talk about is how to communicate with patients who we suspect may have opioid misuse or risk at opioid misuse in the ED. 
Again, the Ontario guidelines were very helpful here. I'm sure it is not alternative facts. That is... Oh, dear. All of a sudden, I can't believe that I... I don't don't believe I put alternative alternative facts facts in there. I know. You are succumbing no, I'm not. to the American no, political scene. No, I'm not. I, I must have been while I was watching that. I <laughs> that that was a bit cheeky, wasn't it? But it it isn't alternate facts. It is the facts. Okay. It is a fact. It is a fact. I'm not that as nurses and healthcare providers, we do dread talking to these patients about narcotic use. And often we have our own judgments around this. We're also concerned about our safety, perhaps when that communication doesn't go well. Click right now. (laughs) So hopefully these strategies will help. So one, gather as as much information as possible before seeing the patient. For example, previous ED visits, pharmacy recalls, uh, refills, double doctoring, etc. These are objective things, not I have 13 nurses here who think you're here meds, uh, drug seeking. Yeah, exactly. Get, Get objective information. Number two, set some expectations. Talk to the patients about statistics, risks, and benefit of opioids. Um, and so one line is an example. My job is to manage your pain, but at the same time, I have to manage the potential for some pain medications to harm you. Yeah. Okay. Number three, don't blame the patient for opioid misuse. So don't transfer the blame. So for example, Prescription pain medications, even when used as directed, can cause patients to become dependent. And I'm concerned that the pills we prescribed for you in the past, even though you were using them appropriately, you may now be dependent on them. Mm-hmm. We can help you break free of that dependence. So it's really, yeah. it's making, it's taking it away from them choosing to yes. do this. It was, you know, this happened and now here's where we're at. Exactly. Ensure patients know that their medical concerns are being taken... Number four, sorry. Ensure patients know that their medical concerns are being taken seriously. For There's a, quite a few examples here. Uh, I want to make sure there's nothing dangerous causing your pain because that is our main responsibility in the emergency department. I want to relieve your symptoms and make you as comfortable as I can. Yeah. Uh, I will not use opioids to control your pain because I think opioids will make your condition worse, even if it makes you feel better in the short term. I think opioids will be harmful to you. So if you want treatment for your pain, I'm going to try to treat your pain with other types of medications. So you can see all of those are, I'm not saying we're not going to treat your pain. I'm just saying we're not treating it with maybe what you expect me to be treating it with. Exactly. Yeah. But but the goal is still to treat the pain. We're just mm-hmm. going to do it differently. The final word really is about the fact that emergency departments do not adopt a blanket, no narcotics policy. There obviously are scenarios in which opioids are part of good clinical care. And I remember, I don't remember where it is. It's actually probably not even appropriate if we do say where it was. Years ago, we were teaching, and I remember I took a picture of this sign at the hospital we were teaching at where it had, bigger than anything else in the entire hospital, a big sign in the waiting room that said, we will not prescribe you any narcotics no matter what is wrong with you. And it then had about 15 bullet points below it as to, uh, don't ask, don't ask, don't mm-hmm. ask, it won't happen. And I was horrified mm-hmm. yeah. that if I was hit by a car in this small community and I was in 16 pieces, yeah. I they, still wouldn't get morphine. Yeah, it was a little bit dreadful to have it in the parking, into, in the in waiting, the waiting room. room. before, yeah. And I think it was even before they were triaged. Like I before, think so. It was the first thing you saw when you got in the door was basically yeah. this thing saying, no matter what, we're not going to treat your pain. Absolutely. It was weird. I think that Landon and I have talks 
about this together at, at the very least. And Landon said something that really kind of struck me is that he said, nobody grows up saying, I want, when I grow up, I want to be a drug addict. And, or, you know, so this is sometimes a, a, people's first gateway gateway well it is the first gateway to addiction and so we need to have some compassion and humanity and treat them with respect and understand or take accountability that we in emergency departments have actually added to this issue and we now need to come up with ways of managing this so we i thank ontario we were teasing ontario earlier but really for leading the way in a lot of these consensus guidelines so in summary Indiscriminate prescribing of narcotics in emergency departments are contributing to addiction. Two, emergency departments can be leaders in developing strategies to be prudent in how we manage pain, starting with non-pharmacological and non-opiate solutions. Evaluate red and yellow flags in patients who are at risk of opiate misuse. Develop communication strategies that acknowledge that pain control is important but also to acknowledge that medical professionals are concerned about our role in addiction. And finally, do not adopt a non-narcotic policy as there are scenarios in which opiates are part of good clinical care. And just on that last one, we're not saying that options are not better because the pain-free ED, he actually has an ED where there is no narcotics given. But... We're saying there is still times where it might be appropriate Appropriate to do so. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I'm sure that the next month we will be in beautiful Charlottetown, PEI. And Landon can tell you all about his oysters. I I reserve all comments. (laughs) See you later. Goodbye. See you next month. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, Ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca